If you were here last time I spoke, I say that you're pretty brave because I covered four chapters in that study. We're not going to be doing that tonight, so don't worry. We are going to spend our time studying one uh, particular chapter of the Bible or a a particular psalm. We're going to study Psalm 2 tonight. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, uh, we will have the uh, verses up on the board or on the screen behind me. I know Neil studied Psalm 1 a couple of weeks ago. That was not planned. Um, and he talked about how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are, are parallel um, psalms that go hand in hand. In Psalm 1, at the beginning, we talk of, or the Bible talks about the blessed man. In Psalm 2, at the end of it, it talks about the blessed man. In Psalm 1, at the end, it talks about uh, a warning to the wicked. And Psalm 2 begins with a warning to to the wicked. There's a lot of uh, comparisons, but Psalm 2 uh, looks at it from a different perspective. I've given the subtitle, The Reign of God's King. I want to study Psalm 2 because it is a great comfort to us to remember that God is in control. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this from time to time. I look at the direction our culture is headed, spiritually, morally, and I get frustrated, I get nervous, I get anxious, and I start to worry about the future, worry about my kids and what they'll have to endure at the hands of a culture that is against God. Psalm 2 is a comfort to us as we, look at, as we deal with this. In fact, we're going to look in Acts chapter 4 when the Christians were being persecuted by, by those in Jerusalem. They remembered Psalm 2 as a great comfort to them. Psalm 2 is also good about reminding us of the goodness and severity of God. There is two paths of life. There is the one of the blessed man who submits to God and does not resist his rule. But there's a stark warning in this chapter, or in this psalm, about those who refuse to bow down and to submit to God. So I want to look at this. I also want us to remember, Jesus didn't come down to earth just to die for our sins. But He came to rule. And this has been the plan of God from the beginning, that Jesus would rule over the entire earth. And that His people, His followers, would get to be a part of His kingdom. Now over in the left hand of of the board, I've got a basic outline of Psalm 2. It is broken up into four sections, and if you're following along in your Bible, you might see a space dividing those sections. And in each section, there is a different uh, person or group of people that are at the center of the author's or the psalmist's attention. In verses 1 through 3, the psalmist looks out upon the kingdoms and the nations of the world, and he looks at man's rebellion against God. In the next section, verses 4 through 6, the psalmist draws our attention up into heaven where we can look at God's response to this rebellion. In the third section, we see that the king that God appointed to rule upon the earth gives a decree that the father, or he declares the decree that the father had told him in times past. And then finally, after considering all these facts and all these realities, The psalmist turns to those kings and he says, you cannot defeat this king. You cannot overthrow him. You must come and bow before him and find refuge in him. Acts chapter 4 
attributes um, this psalm to be written by King David during the time that Israel dwelt in the land of Canaan. And if you remember, they were surrounded by enemies on all the sides of Israel. The Moabites, the Philistines, the um, Syrians, the Chaldeans, on and on. And there was constantly this threat of the enemies overtaking Israel. This psalm, in its original context, was written as a warning to these kings, these enemies. The God of Israel is not like other gods. The king of Israel is not like other kings. He has the God that created the universe, the world, and all things behind him. But we also, through the eyes of the New Testament, can look back and see through the New Testament authors, this psalm is really talking about the Messiah, that one that Israel hoped for, the one that would reign forever, and his kingdom would be across all the earth, and he would vanquish all of Israel's foes. So that's kind of the context that we can look through, we can um, examine this psalm through. We're going to be spending our time looking from that New Testament perspective. Let's begin by looking at the first section, verses 1 through 3. Humanity's rebellion against God. The psalmist begins, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, the psalmist doesn't hesitate to express his, fresh, or his amazement at what the enemies of God are doing. And he asks the question, why? He doesn't understand. He cannot comprehend. The psalmist knew the God of the Israelites was the one who had created the universe, the one who spoke the very land and the, and the water and the air that they breathed. He spoke that into existence. He is the one that sustained the air that they breathed, the one that kept their hearts beating. And yet these people are going to stand against God and they're going to resist Him. He's amazed at it. And what he sees is a disgruntled, bitter, uneasy people who stand in rebellion against God. And everything they do is in vain. He asks why. These people hate God. They resist Him. They don't want Him. Why? Because God has put moral constraints upon them. They stand together and they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Bonds and cords in the eyes of these rebellious men represent prison, holding them back from enjoying the life that they wanted. They want the fun without the accountability. They want to do what they want to. They want to be their own masters their own rulers, their own God. Man wants to enjoy the pleasantness of life, but he doesn't want the yoke that, that, that comes with the joy of serving God and being under his rule. Every time they think about that yoke that is upon them, they resist, they hate it, and they want it taken off. Notice that yoke is on them already. They are already under the authority of God. And like a dog that might resist a, a leash around its neck, or a horse or an ox that would resist a yoke or a bridle, what does it do? It causes pain. It causes pain. And that's what these kings and these uh, rebellious people are doing. This has been the, the, the way man has been from the beginning, isn't it? 
As we look to Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, we see Satan tempt Eve with this idea that she could be equal to God. In Genesis 3, verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve lived under the bonds and the cords and the restraints and the law and the authority of God, didn't she? When she was in the garden. And she got to enjoy the blessings of that. There's never been a paradise like that. But when Satan came along and said, you can be equal to God instead of underneath him, that appealed to her pride. And she decided that she wanted to be equal to God. She wanted to be her own ruler, her own master. And she stepped out of the bounds that God had put upon her. And from that time, man has struggled with this, haven't we? In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, this is so clearly seen in Pharaoh when Moses and Aaron come before him and say, The God of the Israelites says, Let my people go. His response is, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Pharaoh just dismisses what God had commanded as if it was nothing. Now, I realize that most people are not like Pharaoh. They're not walking around and boldly standing against God, resisting the things that, that um, are resisting direct commands that he has given, like Pharaoh did. Not everyone's willing to stand and watch as plagues destroy their country until they lose their firstborn. But this is the basic impulse of every human heart. I will be my own master. I will be my own ruler. Now you might be telling me, you might be thinking in your, your pew, you know, the average Christian or the average non-Christian doesn't hate God. They don't hate God. They don't actively walk around and say, I hate you, God, and I'm not going to obey you. Most people in this country believe in God, don't they? But they don't believe in the God of the Bible. We may not have rulers and kings who are leading a rebellion against God, but our society is full of influencers and celebrities who promote anti-God ideas every day. Every aspect of their ideas are designed to remove God from the equation and remove any reminder of the yoke that He has placed upon us. Who created the universe? Not God. Who created man? Not God. It was random chance. Who decides how we can live our lives? Not God. I get to decide. Who decides what marriage is? Not God. Who gets to decide what genders I can be? Not God. Who decides what truth is? Not God. Who decides how we get to heaven? You find your own way and I'll find mine. And on and on and on. These ideas are bombarding us all in rebellion against God. And at the same time, they say, do not preach from the Bible. Do not pray in schools. Do not discuss the Bible. Do not etch scriptures or Ten Commandments on our government properties. Our society hates God. Not just any God, the God of the Bible, the God who rules the universe. And they dismiss Him and His commands. They hate the God that says, be holy for I am holy. They hate the yoke that he puts upon us. 
When Jesus came, he said in John chapter 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that it is the works are evil. When Jesus came, the world hated him, because he reminded them of, that they were ruled by God. And they hated him, and they hated the yoke that he brought upon them, or he reminded them of. So we have a rebellion problem, don't we? We see that man hates God. Man hates the yoke that God has placed upon us. So what's God's response to this rebellion? Does he dismiss it? Is it no big deal to him up in heaven? Let's read the second section, verses 4 through 6. The writer says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I love the way he drives home how far God is away from us. He doesn't say God laughs, but he reminds us of that infinite distance between earth and these men who are working against God and the God who sits in the heavens. And God sits in the heavens, and what does he do to their efforts? He laughs. He will hold them in derision. He mocks. He scoffs their efforts because they're futile. They cannot do what they want to do. Now, while God may laugh at their efforts, he does not laugh at rebellion. Rebellion is not a funny thing to him. And when he speaks, the Bible says that he will speak to them in his wrath and he will distress them in his deep displeasure. You have a people who are already distressed. They're already troubled. They're already uneasy, struggling against the yoke that God has put upon them. And when he speaks, what happens? It distresses them further. When he acts, it, puts, it vexes their souls. As we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, I want to remind you what's going on here. Saul was the king of God's people. And God had given him a very specific instruction. You utterly destroy the Amalekites because of what they did to my people. Well, Saul decided to call an audible. And he decided he would improvise on God's commands. And he decided to keep a little bit back and offer a sacrifice to God. And God sends Samuel to him. Saul, Saul comes to Samuel and he says, Look, I've done everything that God commanded me to do. It's almost as if he was uneasy and he knew that he had improvised. And Samuel tells him, To God, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. The world will laugh at sin, and Saul tried to downplay the way that he had changed God's commands, but God didn't laugh at it, and God rebuked him. To God, rebellion is like witchcraft. To God, rebellion, stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. You might as well set up an idol and worship that idol if you're going to be in rebellion against God. God doesn't look upon it lightly. In Luke chapter 19, verse 27, this is Jesus here, and he's teaching a parable. Um, he's teaching a, t a parable here. We're not going to look at that parable, but notice what he says about those who resist his rule. But bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. That's harsh, isn't it? That's harsh, but it's pretty clear. God does not take rebellion and those who withstand his rule lightly. He created us, 
He tried to bless us, and our rebellion is to spit in his face and say, I don't want you to rule over me. It's ungrateful, and God said that he will punish those who reject his rule. So, God is angry at at this rebellion, but he's got a plan in place. And he says, you refuse me, and you refuse my king, or you try to keep me from setting up my rulership on the earth, but I have already set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, I want to turn to Acts chapter 4, and I want to read this chapter. Um, We see in the New Testament, the apostles and the Christians attribute Psalm chapter 2 to speak very specifically of, of a time where the enemies of God stood against the king, uh, the Lord's king, and the Lord's, or the, the Lord and his king, excuse me. This happened during the crucifixion. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So let's go back and let's think about what's happened. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he represents a threat to the power that the Jews in leadership had. He was a threat to them. They got tired of it and what did they do? We're going to silence him by killing him. And they think, good, we're done. We won't have to worry about Jesus. His disciples will go home and we'll be done. Everything will be back to normal. But we see weeks later... The day of Pentecost happens. Peter preaches the gospel sermon. Thousands upon thousands enter into the kingdom of God or the church. And we see in Acts chapter 3, there was a lame man that had been lame for many, many years. Peter heals him. And what happens? A large crowd comes. And what does Peter do? They spoke to the people about the resurrection of Jesus. And that disturbed these Jewish leaders here in in Acts chapter 4, verse 2. They were greatly disturbed that these people preached the resurrection from the dead. They thought they were done with Jesus. They thought they were done with this man. But instead of ending his movement, they empowered it. In verse 3, it says, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men who came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, the elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together. And seeing the man who had had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed... That a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So put yourself, you know, as a fly on the wall in this situation. These rulers come together, and they bring James, or John and Peter, and they bring this healed man that everyone knew had been lame. And he's standing there in their midst. And they can't even realize the awesomeness of what had been done. They're so focused on ending this movement of God. So they send these guys out and they're conferring together. And they're, what can we do? How can we stop this? They couldn't figure out any way to do it. 
All they could do is say, let's just threaten these people so maybe they won't stop or so they won't keep teaching about Jesus. So in verse 18, they called him and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So their best effort at ending what, Pe- what Peter and John were doing was, let's threaten them. And Peter says, sorry, I'm not. We're, we're going to keep teaching. That was the best that they had against God and against his, against his kingdom. In verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So as these Christians were enduring this persecution and they see God's power behind the Christian movement, they reflect upon Psalm 2 as an encouragement to keep pushing. And in verse 27, they clearly attribute this to the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, when the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So remember in Psalm 2, the nations raging, the, the nations coming together to stand against, the, against God and his king. This is what happened when Jesus was crucified. Notice Herod and Pontius Pilate became friends in Luke 23, verse 12. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with one another, with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Herod was the king of the Jews, and Pilate was the Roman governor. There was conflict there. But when it came to Jesus, they, they became friends. Notice the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Matthew 26, verses 3 through 4. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people were assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. They were scheming, they were plotting, and they said, let's kill Jesus. Who did they go to to kill Jesus? They called on their enemy, the Romans. The Jews hated the Romans. They hated to be under the authority of the Gentile people. And the Romans hated the Jews because they were stubborn and obnoxious and rebellious. But when it came to God and his anointing, they came together to stand against God. And the Christians in Acts chapter 4 recognize they came, they gave the best. Herod was the king of the people. Pilate was the Roman governor. And that was the best that man had to offer. But when they did what they thought was best, what did they do? Instead of ending the movement that God or the, that Jesus started, they did exactly what God wanted them to do. When they gathered together, their schemes played right into the hand of God to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. These Christians were dealing with this persecution right now. I'm sure they had a temptation to be afraid, to be nervous, to be anxious, to give up. 
and they reflect on Psalm 2, and they see how Psalm 2 was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now notice in verse 29, they say, Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Psalm 2 empowered them to keep going. They recognized that the same God who made his will happen despite the king of the Jews and the governor of the Romans, who made all of this happen despite all the efforts of man, we're still behind the church. We're still behind the kingdom. And that gave them boldness to keep taking the word of God forth despite the persecution they were going through. So, as this happened, what happened to these Jew- Jewish leaders? They became distressed. They become more vexed. They recognized the futility of their efforts to destroy Christianity. So notice, when God speaks, it troubles man more. The king is already reigning. He reigns. These people were already under his authority. They just did not want to acknowledge it. And all the self-will in the world and all the fighting and all the rebellion in the world will not change the fact that Jesus is reigning as king. Now, let's go to section 3, verses 7 through 9. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So the psalmist turns to this king, and the king says, These are the things that God the Father had told me in time past. I will declare the decree, or I will declare the thing that God appointed. Number one. God appointed that Jesus, or that the king would be his son, and that he would be begotten. Begotten is a confusing term, and there are a lot of different ideas about what this is teaching. But there's a specific day that God brings to our attention in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. He says, today I have begotten you. What day is he talking about? What is Psalm 2 talking about? Is it talking about the birth of Jesus or birth of a king? Or is it talking about a king receiving his crown? He's talking about a king being placed upon a throne. And we see as we turn into the New Testament, men like Paul give us an explanation of when Jesus was begotten. In Acts chapter 13, verses 29 through 33, Paul is preaching a sermon to some Jews in the synagogue Uh, in a city called Antioch. And he tells the story, the timeline of the Old Testament, and he gets to Jesus. And in verse 29, he says, Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul talks about how Jesus preached and he taught, but these Jewish people crucified him. And what happened? He was resurrected. 
And those people, Paul included, were witnesses to the things that Jesus did. In verse 32, we declare to you glad tidings, good news, the gospel. That promise which was made to them. What was the promise made to them? It was the promise of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. That he would raise up a king. That he would be the son of God. And this all took place when? When he raised up Jesus from the dead. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul also talks about when Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now we see multiple occasions where Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels as the Son of God. We see at his baptism, what happens? He comes out of the water and God, a, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son. We see Jesus declared to be the Son of God on the mount uh, when he was transfigured. But most clearly, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God when by the resurrection from the dead. Everything Jesus had said could be verified as true. He truly was the Son of God. Why? Because He was raised from the dead. No man could do this without God. In Hebrews chapter 5, <clears throat> we see this same argument, a uh, similar argument being made about Jesus becoming high priest. And He also refers to Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. When did Christ become a priest, a high priest for man? It wasn't when he was born. It wasn't when he was here on this earth. It was after he had sacrificed himself. For man. Only after this did he become a high priest. So we know that Psalm 2, based on the teachings of Romans 1, of Acts 13, of Hebrews 5, it's all referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is talking about the Lord raising his king from the dead. Now, the next thing that, that the Father decreed unto the Son was that if he would ask of me and, and give you. He says, if you ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. Now, Jesus has a kingdom. Why don't we read about it? I don't know about you. When I get on the news sites, I don't read about the kingdom of Christ. I only read about the United States of America and Canada and these other places. Why do we not see his kingdom in power? In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, the Bible says when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here, see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. He's telling them this is not a, king like you're or a kingdom like you're expecting. His followers and even the Pharisees, they were looking for a physical kingdom with Israel being the center of that kingdom. But Jesus tells them this was not a kingdom like these others. In John chapter 18, verse 36 through 37, when Jesus is on trial, 
He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So, God promised to Jesus that he would have a kingdom and his nation, or he would inherit all nations. Basically, his kingdom would overtake all the nations of the world. The ends of the earth would be his for a possession. How did this happen? As we look to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18, notice what Jesus says. He came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus had all authority over heaven and all authority over earth. That was a fact. He had, been, he had been become the king. And what did he say in verse 19? Because of this, you go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus' kingdom would not overtake all kingdoms of the earth immediately or subvert them or destroy them. But through a spiritual means, the kingdom would be spread from Jerusalem all across the world. All through baptizing people and teaching them to be a part of the church. The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It has come true. God promised it in Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 that the, the, the king's nation would extend across the the earth and that's what we see today the church has spread all over and continues to spread the last part of the decree that the king says you shall break the nations with a rod of iron you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel this is very common terminology that's used to describe the kingdom and to describe this king but i want to look at just one in daniel chapter 2 verse 44 this is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interprets. And he says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, and it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. You know, when I think about the wrath of God and the wrath of, of Christ as a king, I often like to think about the judgment day. But we see there is destructive power in the kingdom of God that we can see in history. We see that although the Roman Empire tried to extinguish Christianity, Christianity has long outlived the Roman Empire. We've seen men, uh, we've seen civilians, we've seen kings, we've seen philosophers, we've seen emperors all stand against God and against His kingdom, and they have gone on, but the church goes on. We see Roman emperor after Roman emperor use threats of taking the lives of these people, throwing them to lions, using them in games, using Christians in games, hanging Christians on crosses and burning them to light the roads as a threat to try to extinguish the Christian faith. It hasn't happened. Those, those emperors came and went, and Christianity still reigns. We see great philosophers who are very wise in their own eyes. Men like Voltaire, a French philosopher who said, 100 years from my day there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by someone who is uh, seeking antiques. Voltaire has come and gone. We don't think about him much. But Christ still is reigning. 
No matter how wealthy, how mighty, how cunning, how violent people stand against God, His kingdom will crush them. And that is a great comfort for you and I to consider if we are a part of His kingdom. So, in this decree, the Son will be risen from the dead. In this decree, He will inherit all nations. In this decree, He will destroy any of those who oppose Him. And finally, we have the psalmist turning to the kings of the earth, and he says, consider these facts. God is angry at your rebellion. God is going to destroy you. His king is already reigning, so stop resisting him. And he gives the application in Psalm chapter 2, verse 10. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now I recognize I've had a pretty harsh tone during this sermon. And this is a harsh passage of scripture. There's great warnings, utter destruction. Great um, destruction in the language of the psalmist. But this is where the goodness of God is revealed. We focus on the severity of God, but now we can see a great invitation that He gives to repent and to come and serve Him. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God does not want to punish the rebellious. It's not His goal, His desire. And so he begs and he pleads with people to come and repent and to submit to him. And that's exactly what the psalmist begs these kings of the earth and these rulers to do. He says, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. To be wise and be instructed. What does that mean? They recognize it's futile to resist against this king. They're going to be destroyed. If they keep going down the pass... It will end badly for them. So what should they do? Be humble and listen to what the king has to say. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If you want to please this king, you want to avoid his wrath, come, bow your knee to him, and serve him. Let him be your master. Let him be your ruler. Let him be your Lord. Stop being your own Lord. He says, bow now or be broken later. And if you do this, you will receive joy. You will find fulfillment. But it's only by coming under the rulership or the authority of this king. He says to add to your humility, service, but also with fear. Enjoy this king, but do it with reverence and appropriate trembling. That's what we need to do. And finally, he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Now that's kind of odd in our culture. But as we look back into the, into the Old Testament during the time of these kings, we see this was a common thing for people who were being anointed to be kissed. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. He took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and he kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? We also see uh, people didn't just kiss 
uh, kings or, or the feet of kings or the ring of kings, but they also kissed their idols. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 2, Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say then, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. So there's an idea of loving the king, submit, submitting to the king, paying homage to the king. It's a sign of affection, allegiance, and submission. And he begs those who are, who are rebellious to come and to kiss the son. Give him your heart, give him your life, and let him rule over you. But if you don't, you will perish in the way. It is a fact. When his wrath is kindled but a little, those who put their trust in him will be blessed. He ends by reminding us there are only two ways to live. Give Jesus your life. Let him rule over you or resist him. So as we think about Psalm 2, there's a great rebellion. And each one of us has had elements of that rebellion in our lives. God's response, he set up a king. And we are to come, we are to serve that king, we are to be wise and instructed by that king, and we are to give him our lives. Now, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 reminds us of a great truth. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. There are only two groups of people. If you're not with Jesus, it's not neutral. If you're not with Jesus, you're against him. That's a great warning to us. There's no walking that fence. There's no giving Jesus some of our life and holding back others. He says you're all in or you're not. Are we all in tonight? Are we willing to go the distance with him? Are we willing to just sacrifice a few hours of our, our week on Sundays to worship him? Are we willing to give more? Are we willing to give him our possessions and let him make the decisions and let him be ruler of our possessions? Are we willing to let him be ruler of our time? Are we willing to let him be ruler of our marriages and our families and our lives? Or are we holding some back? If we get to hold some of it back, he's not ruler. And we only treat him like a consultant. We need to be all in or we will face punishment. <clears throat> Secondly, you and I, if we're all in, we have a duty to be like this psalmist. What was he doing? He was calling out to those people and he was warning them of the great destruction that was coming. Are we doing that? Are we doing that with the people that we know who are not submitting to Christ? Do we go out into the world and tell them about the utter destruction that Jesus is going to bring upon those who are rebellious? Or do we keep it to ourselves? This psalmist sets the pattern that you and I should follow. Not come and do things because I say, but come and serve the king because you will be blessed by him or you will be destroyed. We need to take refuge in the king and we need to take the message, the good news, so that others may do the same. And finally, I want to think about Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30 in light of Psalm 2. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These rebellious people that we see in Psalm 2, what do they do? They struggle against the yoke that God has put upon them. And they're miserable and they're bitter and they're rebellious and all their efforts are, are in vain. Jesus offers us another way. Willingly take his yoke upon him or upon us. And what will happen? It won't be difficult. It won't be a, a great burden. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and then you will find rest for your souls. The only way to find peace and joy and fulfillment in life is by submitting our lives to Him, by taking that yoke upon our shoulders and allowing Him to be master and ruler and king of our life. And if we do that, we will find a joy and a blessing that we can find nowhere else. For His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Have you embraced His yoke tonight? Are you wearing His yoke? Have you submitted your life to Him? Or are you pug or tugging against the reins, against those bonds and those cords that He has put upon us? Embrace it. If you have not embraced it, embrace it tonight and receive the joy that, that Christ offers us. Hope you've enjoyed the lesson. I hope you consider the things that we've studied tonight. You'll take them to heart. And if there are areas of your life that you have refused to give King Jesus, the ruler, to be king over your life, that you'll give those to him tonight. If there's someone here who needs prayers of the church, we're going to offer an invitation. If you want to confess your sins or you want us to uh, help you and pray for you, or if there's someone here who would like to come and to begin being submissive to Jesus. They would come and like to have the relationship and the blessing that Jesus offers. Come and let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.